it. We're going through the book of Acts. We're just going to make it through the first 11 verses today. And um, I don't know if you guys know this, but of all the books in the New Testament, the book of Acts is actually quite unique. It is the only one that is a direct continuation of one of the gospel accounts. You guys don't know, um, Luke wrote both uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and uh, the, the whole purpose, and we'll get a little bit more into it later, but it was just to provide an accurate account of what happened in Jesus' life and then in the life of the early church. Um, the Book of Acts, as we, as we read through this, it's going to set the stage for many of Paul's writings. Um, and, and the truth is, is the book of Acts can actually help us to understand what Paul was trying to write in his letters. It's going to give us a lot of background in the early church, in early church history. Um, Luke is going to share with us many of the problems, the frustrations, the theological disagreements, all of those things that happened in the early church. You know, that's one of the evidences that the, the uh, New Testament writings are true is because they show it all. Like if this was, if, if you were writing a heroic story and trying to start, you'd only put in the good parts. You wouldn't put in the failures, the disagreements, the arguments, the problems. Finally, it's going to allow us, this book is going to allow us to see the transition from God working strictly through the Jews to salvation being extended to the Gentiles also. How many of that's good news for us? Amen. Amen. <laughs> so Luke's going to pick up where the, the or in, in the book of Acts, he's going to pick up where he left off in the Gospel of Luke. Um, he wrote both of these to a friend named Theophilus in probably AD 62 to 64. Um, and, and in Luke 1, 3 through 4, it, it's, he kind of explains why he's doing it. It says, It seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So, so Luke wrote this so that Theophilus could know with certainty what happened. Um, we see the, the early... The early steps of the of the first church there in the early church in Judea and Samaria and the surrounding regions as they begin to enter into the Great Commission. And we start, and we're going to look at today, with Jesus appearing to them before the ascension in the day when the Holy Spirit fell upon them in Pentecost. And then we're going to see a shift as the gospel was previously only shared with the Jews. We're going to see a shift as the gospel is now shared with the Gentiles. And then it's going to spend a good amount of time following Paul's missionary journeys. We actually learn the most about Paul's missionary journeys through the book of Acts because it shows his path through the, the surrounding areas. The book of Acts is unique because it's a bridge between the Gospels and every other letter in the New Testament. It shows Gospels carried out the work that was assigned to them. And it lays the foundation for every other book and letter in the New Testament that we come to afterwards. And I know for me, I'm excited to study it because I think we can learn a lot from the early church. Matter of fact, I've done entire messages about what we can learn from the early church. Because the truth is, is that we don't look much like the early church anymore. 
Now, there's some things that have probably changed for the better, but there's a lot of things that have probably changed for the worse. And I think that um, what we can learn from the early church in the book of Acts um, will help us to be more effective as we step out into what God has called us to do in this community as well. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go ahead and get started. In Acts 1, 1 through 2, it says, in, this, in the first book, and this is referring to the, to the Gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was last taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So, Luke starts this letter talking to Theophilus, um, reminding him that this is just a continuation of his previous letter, which was the Gospel of Luke. Um, Theophilus, does anybody know what the Theophilus means? Theophilus means one who loves God. I mean, that's a good name to have. Some scholars have argued that this could possibly be just a generic term for all Christians. Because this idea of Theophilus, one who loves God, is, well, maybe this is Luke writing this down for all, all of Christians. Um, but more than likely, it was, it was written to a specific person. And there's some reasons that we think that. Um, one is how Luke refers to Theophilus. Um, in Luke 1 3, it says, It seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Calling him Most Theophilus, kind of attaching a title to his name, indicates that it's probably a real person. There was actually a dude out there named Theophilus, and, and he had been taught some things. Um, uh, so it was more than likely he was, he was a real person, and it may have been that he was some high-ranking official, some Roman official that wanted to know what was going on. So, so he may have commissioned Luke to write this, or maybe he was just a, a Roman friend of Luke. The truth is, is that we don't even know for sure that he was a believer. He could have just been some, some guy in the Rome, a Roman official wanting to know what's going on and wanted an accurate account of what happened. But it's more likely that he was, based on it says that, that, that this is for to him to have an understanding of the things that he's been taught. But the truth is, we're not really sure. But we do know that, it, at least it appears, that the that, that Theophilus was Luke's patron. He's the one that was basically commissioned this work from Luke to make sure that we had this, so that we had an a accurate account of what happened. And, and that was the the gospel, or the, the, the gospel of Luke, when we read the book of Acts, remember these are historical accounts. The purpose was to create an accurate historical document of what actually happened. And that's actually, you know, there's a difference. We just went through the Gospel of John, right? The Gospel of John was, was a, a theologically uh, purposed written book, right? There's some arguments that, that John kind of shifted stuff around in the timeline to make his points, to make sure that the, 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 the theology that he was trying to teach made sense. But the Gospel of Luke and, and the book of Acts isn't like that. This is a historical account of what happened. When we read this, we should be able to, to, to understand this is a historical document. This is stuff that actually happened. This isn't fairy tales. This isn't some story that somebody made up. But it's a history, a documented history of the events that occurred. And in Luke's first letter to Theophilus, Luke outlines his purpose for writing the letter. 
And I've already shared many of these scriptures, but I'm going to read it through all, all again. Luke 1 through 4 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Theophilus may have wanted to verify the authenticity or the accuracy of the things that he had been taught. And these two books were written in such a way to confirm those things that he was taught, to, to confirm them, but also to help guide him and instruct him in his faith as well. Like I said, this letter is intended to be a continuation of the Luke's gospel. And in the gospel of Luke, it ends with the ascension, right? So Jesus is... is, is uh, uh, <laughs> Why did that word just blank on me? Crucified. Man, the word just left my head. <laughs> Jesus is crucified. He dies and he rises again. But there's a 40-day period from when he rises from the dead, from when he is... And that ascension is essentially where the book of Luke leaves off. And when the, the, the book of Acts starts, we have this slight overlap. He gives a, a real brief summary. And then we get to the ascension. And that's what we're going to actually go through today is, 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 is a lot of that brief overlap between the two books. In Acts 1-3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. <laughs> As we begin to explore this summary of the Gospel of Luke, Luke reminds Theophilus that Jesus, after being risen from the dead, appeared alive to his disciples. How many know that's an amazing thing? The resurrection is, is crucial to, to what we believe, to our theology. If they could prove the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity would cease to exist. And, but the reality is, is that when Jesus shows up after he's resurrected, he shows himself to tons of people. We have all the disciples he's been shown to, uh, or the, the apostles he shows himself to. And then we have all the disciples. At one point, there was hundreds of them together, and they see Jesus after he rose from the dead. But not only did he rise from the dead, it says here he provided proof that he had appeared to him. It says that, that, that he, he presented himself alive, which is a pretty big proof in and of itself, but then he provides many proofs as he appears to them and to others in those 40 days. This isn't just a few times. He's showing up all the time. He's demonstrating that he is alive. We know that with Doubting Thomas, he actually gets to touch him. He puts his hands in his side and the holes in his, in his hands, and, and, and Jesus was physically there. This wasn't some, some illusion or some sort of... of, uh, of uh, uh, I'm going to have trouble today. <laughs> Trick of the mind. What is that called? Uh, uh, a trick of the mind when you, when you see something that's not there Illu not illusion there's another word for it hallucination hallelujah <laughs> praise God it wasn't an illusion it wasn't a hallucination <laughs> it's going to be one of those days church you're going to have to work with me you have to ignore the, 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 the mess ups because there's good stuff here amen <laughs> but 40 days he showed himself 
In addition here, the word that they use for, for many proofs, the proofs there, it's the Greek word tekmerios. Tekmerios. See, in the past, I write down the Greek word, and I'm like, I don't know how to pronounce that. I forgot to look it up. Not anymore. I'm getting smart. I have a, a pronunciation guide right here in my, uh, in my notes that tells me how to say it. So that's actually the way it's supposed to be said. Amen. Hallelujah. Tekmerios. That's the Greek word used for proofs. It's the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. And the emphasis of this word is on demonstrable evidence. It's not just hearsay. It's not just, you know, Sally told Mary that told, told Luis that Jesus rose. You know, it's not that these are demonstrable proofs that people actually saw him. They touch him. They, they, they interacted with the things that he did. He ate with them. These are, are proofs that have a demonstration shown with them. And, and that's why we can trust the New Testament so much because these are all eyewitness accounts. Luke wasn't writing uh, about something that he found some stuff about that happened hundreds of years ago. He talked to the people who were actually there and he documented their accounts. This wasn't just hearsay and, and telephone game testimony. This is, this is eyewitness accounts and evidence that were experienced with their, their senses, right? Sight, touch, smell. They, they, they were there with Jesus. He was really there. Amen? And this is good news for us today, like I said, because we know that we can trust the Scripture because of the, the solidity and the authenticity and the strength of the witnesses that we're hearing it from. Amen. And then as we continue on in verses 4 through 5, it says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So like I said, after Jesus rose, he spent many days with his disciples. He still taught them. He still instructed them. And, and Luke actually doesn't record as much that happened during those 40 days as many of the other Gospels. Um, but Luke wanted to reiterate, reiterate here one important thing that Jesus said. He says, do not depart, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now this is a reference to Luke 24, 49, and it says, And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you clothed with power from on high. So in verse 5, we see that um, the, we see this word for as well. So this is helping us to understand what Jesus is talking about. So we have, and while staying with him, he ordered Jesus not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And this little preposition here, for, it, it tells us that this next sentence is still attached to the first sentence, right? It's not a separate thought. It's not a separate idea. He needs to stay to receive the promise for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So now we know that the, the, the promise, one, and, and 2449, we know the promise has to do with power from on high, and now we know the promise has to do with the Holy Spirit coming upon them. The promise from the Father is the sending of the Holy Spirit with whom that they were going to be baptized in. And then we get to see, as we study this, we get to see that there's a difference between 
water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In this case, we see that both are subsequent to salvation. One we do in obedience. We're baptized in the Father, in the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because all three members of the Godhead, all three persons of the Godhead have a role to play in salvation. The Father created the plan of salvation. Then Jesus, he lived and he executed the plan of salvation. And then the Holy Spirit reveals our need for salvation and confirms in us that we have been saved. He is the seal of salvation on our lives. All three persons of the Godhood are involved in salvation. And water baptism for us is an outward representation of what has already taken place inside of us. It is the public and physical demonstration and declaration of our repentance from sin and turning towards God. There's a reason why that when we baptize in this church that we fully submerge people in the water. Because your baptism has to do with being whelmed. has to be when you, uh, the baptismo is the word they used to, to, to dye clothes in those days. They, they would say that the clothes, uh, when they would dye them, they would baptismo, they would put them completely under the water. And when they did so, they were completely submerged and they took on the dye. And when they were pulled out, they were different than when they were put back in, right? So, but that's why when we baptize, we fully baptize because it's, it's, you're supposed to be fully whelmed. It's actually a representation of your death by faith in Christ. And that's your burial. You're getting buried. You're put under the ground. When you come out, it represents Jesus rising and in your own life, a newness of life. Whereas the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about the Holy Spirit whelming you coming upon you, being fully on you. It's much in the same way we talked about being whelmed. It's to be whelmed in the Holy Spirit, for Him to be completely over you, and you completely in Him. We also see from this this simple passage that there's a difference between the Holy Spirit in you, which is salvation, and the Holy Spirit on you, or baptism, in the Holy Spirit, or being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's referred in Scripture in in both ways, being filled with or being baptized in the Holy Spirit. But there is a difference because Jesus here is speaking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He is speaking of a time after that He breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. You see, that salvation, when Jesus breathed on apostles they received the holy spirit and they were saved and you can find that in john 20 19 through 23 it says on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the jews jesus came and stood among them and said to them peace be with you and when he had said this he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were glad when they saw the lord and jesus said to them peace be with you as the father has sent me so i am sending you and when he had said this He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. In this moment, Jesus is demonstrating the the reception of the Holy Spirit. This is salvation. And this happens in the 40 days that he was on the earth after he died. He resurrected, but before he ascended to heaven. That's the time period here. But now Jesus is talking about a time after that that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them and they're going to receive power from on high. 
this is a completely separate event from salvation. Because one happens, salvation, receiving the Holy Spirit happens when Jesus is still on the earth in the 40 days before he ascends. But this can't happen. The Pentecost, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that's supposed to happen, can't happen until Jesus leaves. So Jesus has already ascended. So it's clear they're two separate events. Because they happen in completely two different time frames. One, Jesus on the earth. One, Jesus has ascended. And that's why here, church, that we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as something subsequent and separate from salvation. Because that's what the Scripture teaches us and and demonstrates to us. Amen? In Acts 1, 6 through 7, as we continue on, it says, When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So, if you know about the Jews in this time, um, they were waiting for the literal coming of the Messiah's earthly kingdom. Um, that's one of the things as we went through the book of John, I said we could probably retitle the book, this is uh, how people misunderstood Jesus. <laughs> because they just didn't get what Jesus was trying to share them. Even the disciples didn't get it fully, of what Jesus was trying to share with them, just to show that he wasn't the Messiah that they thought was coming. Because they misunderstood the signs, they misunderstood the scripture. So the Jews at the time, they expected Jesus to show earthly conqueror coming in military might he was going to bring god's kingdom and free them from the bondage of the romans that's what they were looking for was this mighty earthly military conquering king unfortunately this is why so many people miss jesus as the messiah because they had already decided what the messiah would look like and they were looking for the wrong thing this is why Jesus told them, and you can read this in the, in the book of John, uh, it says that they were going to continue to search for him once he left and not find him. Mm-hmm. And the reason being is, is that how can you find something that's already came if you, <laughs> if you miss it the first time? That's what he said. You're going you're to search for me and you're not going to find me. You're not going to find the Messiah because the Messiah already came. If they continued to look, they would never find him because he was already there. And then even the disciples had not fully what Jesus was teaching. This is after Jesus rose from the dead. He's, he's, he's still with them, and they still don't quite have it. They, they believed Jesus was the Messiah, right? There, there was no doubt in their mind. They understood that because they were rocked when Jesus was, was crucified. Um, these were a people that were following him. They believed he was the Messiah. They still kind of believed that he was going to come and set them free. And, and, and even though they were learning and they were transitioning into understanding who he really was, there was still a part of them that thought that he was going to be the conquering Messiah and set them free from the rule of the Romans. And they were rocked when he died because they thought that he was going to be victorious. But from the outside perspective looking in, it looked like that he had been defeated and he had been destroyed. But then when he rose again, they had an even better understanding. But they still hadn't wrapped their head around the full picture, 
right? They were strengthened. And we, and we know today that because of these people that were, were rocked and destroyed, once again, evidence that what happened was true because these people were, were destroyed and scattered and wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Even Peter denied Jesus, but then when he showed himself again, they were strengthened. And now these people were willing to give their life for what they believed. But they still didn't have the full picture, and you can't really blame them in some sense. Because it's actually implied in the Old Testament that the coming of the kingdom is associated with the coming of the Spirit. So that's what they're happening here. He says to them a second ago, listen, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like, oh, the Holy Spirit's coming. Wait a minute. Does that mean that the kingdom is coming? So that's why they asked this question. Why? That's what he asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And, and I'm not going to read them to you because it'll take too long, but if you're, if you're taking notes, you can write down Isaiah 32, 15 through 20, Isaiah 44, 3 through 5, Ezekiel 39, 28 through 29, Joel 2, 28 through uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and Zechariah 12, 8 through 10. All of those verses demonstrate this idea, at least imply this idea that the kingdom was going to be come with the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's one of these things that I always want to be careful with when I'm reading the scriptures is, is getting that uh, little bit like, you dummies, can't you see what's happening? Because the truth is, is that we have hindsight of, of, of the end of the book. <laughs> we have hindsight. So we can see stuff that they couldn't, but what they understood of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit um, was supposed to arrive with the kingdom. At least it was implied as such. So they asked him, oh, the Holy Spirit's coming, Jesus. Does this mean the kingdom is finally going to be coming? But they still didn't fully understand that the kingdom that Jesus spoke about when he was on earth was, was the spiritual kingdom of God. One that is in the hearts and minds of all of believers. Luke 17, 20-21 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is. Therefore, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So the idea is, is that when Jesus came, the kingdom of God came with him, and then now that's been, the kingdom of God spiritually is here inside of each and every one of us that have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. However, there still is a, t- a time when the physical, uh, the, the earthly restoration of the kingdom of God is going to come. But that's when Jesus returns again. When Jesus returns again, all is going to be restored. But Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. From the other scripture, we know that Jesus didn't even know the time or the hour, at least as he was as he walked in earthly form. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. And all of us can just look forward to that time. And be ready. Amen, church. And then in verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So however, even though the earthly kingdom was not coming right now, not being restored right now, something was coming. The Holy Spirit was coming, and they were going to receive power. And they would receive this power, and us, 
and we'll talk about that in a moment, in order to be Jesus' witnesses. You see, in other words, that, that they were receiving this power so that they would be effective of telling people about Jesus. They needed to be effective in telling the world about him and sharing the gospel. And then Jesus describes the scope of where they're going to be witnesses. Right in for the early church, it says that you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where they, they were right now. They're in Jerusalem. It's their local area, their local city. It's where they, they were at the moment. So they need to be witnesses in Jerusalem. For us today, if you want to translate that to us today, that means where we live now. We're to be witnesses to those in Marana and Tucson, this local area that we have here. But then he says, not just that. It needs to be in all Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria is, an, is, is a larger region. For us, that might be, say, the, the Arizona or the United States. It's a much bigger area. And what's interesting here is he says in all Judea, which is where the Jews lived, this is where the people of God lived, but he says also Samaria, which is where their enemies lived. The Jews hated the Samarians and vice versa. But he said, you know what, I'm going to give you power because you need to be witnesses to them as well. So we're not just supposed to be witnesses to lovely people. We're supposed to go to people that we might not like, that we might not think that we should go to. The truth is, is that, that we're to be witnesses to all of them. And then finally he says, to the end of the earth. And that speaks for itself. That means everybody else. Nobody gets missed. We're to be witnesses to all of them. Now when it talks about this, you're through power from the Holy Spirit when he's come upon you. When you, You've been baptized in him. That's what we referred to it a little while ago, right? Um... Some would say that that was just for the early church. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, that's just for the early church. It was just for them to do their role in starting the early church with the apostles. However, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that the gifts of the Spirit are given, but they're never rescinded. They're given, but nowhere can you find that they're rescinded. I'll also give you something else to think about. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see that the gifts of the church are for the common good and for the edifying and building up of the church. And then here we see that the gifts of the Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to give us power for being witnesses of Jesus sharing the gospel. So we see that those are the two primary purposes of being, purposes of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and, and exercising gifts of the Holy Spirit. So just as, as, as I said, as, a, as, a, as a, a doctrinal issue, the gifts were given, they're never rescinded. You, you won't find that in the, in the New Scripture. You, to, to make an argument for that, you have to jump through some pretty big hoops. But also, just, just from using your brain, God gave you a brain, so we should use it. Amen. Do we still need to build and edify the church? Do we still need to be Jesus' witnesses? So why would we think we need any less power, any less authority, any less gifting than the early church? There are still people who have not heard the gospel. And opposition 
ebbs and flows through different areas through all of time. Right now, uh, where, where the United States was once a very strong Christian country, that's changing. And I want you to know that if it keeps going, you're going to want that power because we're going to need it. And we need it now. Amen. As we continue on in Acts 1, verse 9, it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So when Jesus was done speaking to him, remember, this is a summary of what happened in those 40 days, right? So but when he's done, he's lifted up on a cloud, and he's lifted out of their sight. Actually, I just noticed this when I was studying this. It specifically says that he was lifted up out of their sight. It doesn't say that he left them. It doesn't say that he was taken away from them. Because the scripture says that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. He's moved to a different place, but he's still with us. Amen. He's just moved out of our sight. He's moved back to the heavens so the Holy Spirit can come down. Remember Jesus said, it's better that I go so I can send you the Holy Spirit. Because he couldn't do it if he was still here. I don't know why that is. It just is. <laughs> as I was studying this as well, some scholars say that this isn't an ordinary cloud, right? You know, so in our head, at least in my head, and maybe you guys too, I'm thinking of them on like a, a white, puffy, cumbus cloud. Is that what they're called? What's the big puffy ones? Cumulus? Cumulus. That's what I'm thinking, but, but scholars say maybe that's not what it's saying. It's actually talking about a glory cloud. A cloud of glory takes Jesus up into the heavens. So even though Jesus hasn't left us or forsaken us, this does indicate or signify an end to Jesus' work in ministry here on earth. He was now exalted to the right hand of the Father. Jesus sits because it's finished. And from now on, His work has been placed in our hands. And we'll go ahead and finish here. Verses 10 through 11. It says, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So a couple of angels, they appear. When we got the disciples, Jesus just took off. They can't see him anymore. And that's, you know, just one more miracle Jesus did. They're staring, probably trying to figure out what just happened. <laughs> Standing in awe of Jesus, leaving them going into heaven. And, and two angels show up, and they're like, what are you staring at? Even though that he had ascended, the, the angels reminded him, he's going to be back. He's going to come back just like you saw him go on a cloud. And to me, as I'm reading this, it almost seems, because Jesus had told them that you're going to receive power, you're going to go be my witnesses, they had a job to do. And it almost seems like to me that they're asking, what are you guys doing just staring off into space? Don't you know you got work to do? And I think this is good advice for us as well, amen? It's time to stop staring off into space. We have work to do, church. Amen. Hallelujah.